Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. This podcast is made possible by Francis Abbey, a listener like you who's backing us on Patreon. Thank you. Visit our website at jabberaudio.com support to learn more or go to patreon.com slash team jabberwocky. The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Jabberwocky Audio Theater presents Through the Looking Glass. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio, part five of six. Welcome back, dear listeners. The last episode of Prince Prigio ended so perfectly right at the end of the chapter that I almost don't want to do a summary, but just to be quick... We're in the true and fictitious land of Pantuflia, where a king and a queen have a very clever young boy, Prince Prigio, who is so annoyingly clever that the king wants him to die at the hands of a fire drake, but Prince Prigio's two younger brothers are slain by the fire drake instead. So the king, queen, and entire court abandon Prigio, leaving him nothing to eat and nothing to wear, so he wanders into a garret, uh, kind of an attic, where he accidentally finds magical gifts given to him by fairies. Accidentally goes to town using said magical items, where he falls in love with a charming young lady, realizes his mistakes, understands what his magical gifts are, and vows to slay the fire drake. Now... Killing the fire drake is beyond him, but not another foul creature known as the remora, which is as cold as the drake is hot. So, Prince Prigio taunts the fire drake and the remora to battle each other to the death, whereupon he calls upon his lady, Rosalind, and her father, Lord Kelso, the English ambassador, but discovers his own father, King Grognio, has set a reward for both him, Prince Prigio, and the Fire Drake. Now, seen as he can turn himself in, himself being Prince Prigio, and having killed the Fire Drake, our tale would seem to be near an end. But it turns out that one of the servants, Benson, accidentally transported himself to the court on Prince Prigio's magic carpet with the Fire Drake's horns and tail, leading to Prince Prigio, Lady Rosalind, and Ambassador Kelso to ponder what to do when Benson reappears in the ambassador's home atop the magic carpet, along with the king, the queen, and the aforementioned parts of the fire drake. Well, that worked rather well, I thought. Chapter 14. The King Explains. The first who recovered his voice and presence of mind was Benson. Did your lordship ring for coffee? He asked quietly, and when he was told, Yes, thank you, Benson. He bowed and withdrew with majestic composure. When he had gone, the prince threw himself at the king's feet, crying, Pardon, pardon, my liege. Don't speak to me, sir, answered the king very angrily, and the poor prince threw himself at the feet of the queen. But she took no notice of him whatever, no more than if he had been a fairy, and the prince heard her murmur as she pinched her royal arms. I shall wake him presently. This is nothing out of the way for a dream. Dr. Rumfino ascribes it to imperfect nutrition. All this time, the Lady Rosalind, as pale as a marble statue, was leaning against the side of the open window. 
The prince thought he could do nothing wiser than go and comfort her, so he induced her to sit down on a chair in the balcony, for he felt that he was not wanted in the drawing-room, and soon they were talking happily about the stars which had begun to appear in the summer night. Meanwhile, the ambassador had induced the king to take a seat, but there was no use in talking to the queen. It would be a miracle, she said to herself. And miracles do not happen. Therefore, this has not happened. Presently, I shall wake up in my own bed at Falkenstein. Now, Benson, William, and Thomas brought in the coffee, but the queen took no notice. When they went away, the rest of the company slipped off quietly, and the king was left alone with the ambassador, for the queen could hardly be said to count in these circumstances. You want to know all about it, I suppose, said his majesty in a sulky voice. Well, you have a right to it, and I shall tell you. We were just sitting down to dinner at Falkenstein, rather late. Hours get later every year, I think. When I heard a row on the premises, and the captain of the guard, Colonel MacDougall, came and told us that a man had arrived with the horns and tail of the fire drake, and was claiming the reward. Her Majesty and I rose and went into the outer court, where we found, sitting on that carpet with a glass of beer in his hand, a respectable-looking upper servant, whom I recognized as your butler. He informed us that he had just killed the beast and showed us the horns and tail. Sure enough, there they are. The tail is like the iron handle of a pump, but the horns are genuine. A pair were thrown up by a volcano in my great-grandfather's time, Giglio I. Excellent coffee, this, of yours. The ambassador bowed at this last comment. Oh, but I should note, young listeners, those of you who are interested in the exploits of Giglio I may do so in a treatise called The Rose and the King by M.A. Titmarsh, uh, London, 1855. Well, we asked him where he killed the fire drake, and he said in a garden near Gluckstein. Then he began to speak about the reward and the perquisites as he called them, which it seemed he had read about in my proclamation. Uh, rather a neat thing. Do it up myself, added his majesty. Very much to the point, said the ambassador, wondering what the king was coming to. Glad you like it, said the king, much pleased. Well, where was I? Oh, yes, uh, your man said he had killed the creature in a garden quite near Gluckstein. I didn't much like the whole affair. He is an alien, you see, and then there was my niece, Molinda. Poor girl. She was certain to give trouble. Her heart is buried, if I may say so, with poor Alfonso. But the queen is a very remarkable woman. Very remarkable. Very, said the ambassador with perfect truth. Calumny, she cries to your butler. Perjured knave, thou liest in thy throat. Gluckstein is a hundred leagues from here, and how sayest thou that thou slewest the molester and earnest hither in a few hours' space? This had not occurred to me. I am a plain king, but I at once saw the force of Her Majesty's argument. Yes, said I, how did you manage it? But he, your man, I mean, was not a bit put out. Why, your majesty, says he, I just sat down on that there bit of carpet, wished I was here, and here I am. 
and I'd be glad, having had the trouble, and my time not being my own, to see the color of them perquisites according to the proclamation. On this, Her Majesty grew more indignant, if possible. Nonsense! A story out of the Arabian Nights is not suited for a modern public and fails to win aesthetic credence. These were her very words. Her Majesty's expressions are ever choice and appropriate, said the ambassador. Sit down there on the carpet, knave, she went on. Ourself and consort, meaning me, will take our places by thy side, and I shall wish us in Gluckstein at thy master's. When the experiment has failed, thy head shall from thy shoulders be shorn. So your man merely said, Very well, Mum, uh, your majesty, I mean. And sat down. The queen took her place at the edge of the carpet. I sat between her and the butler, and she said, I wish I were in Gluckstein. Then we rose, flew through the air at an astonishing pace, and here we are. So I suppose the rest of the butler's tale is true, which I regret. But a king's word is sacred, and he shall take the place of that sneak Prigio. But as we left home before dinner and yours is over, may I request your lordship to believe that I should be delighted to take something to sup upon, albeit cold? The ambassador at once ordered a sumptuous repast, to which the king did full justice, and his majesty was shown to the royal chamber as he complained of fatigue. The queen accompanied him, remarking that she was sound asleep, but would waken presently. Neither of them said, Good night. Good night. To the prince. Indeed, they did not see him again, for he was on the balcony with Lady Rosalind. They found a great deal to say to each other, and at last the prince asked her to be his wife, and she said that if the king and her father gave their permission, why, then she would. After this, she went to bed, and the prince, who had not slept at all the night before, felt very sleepy also. But he knew that first he had something that must be done. So he went into the drawing room, took his carpet, and wished to be... Now where do you suppose? Beside the dead body of the fire drake. There he was in a moment, and dreadful the body looked, lying stark and cold in the white moonshine. Then the prince cut off its four hooves, put them in his pouch, and with these he flew back in a second and met the ambassador just as he came from ushering the king to bed. Then the prince was shown his own room, where he locked up the hooves, the carpet, the cap of darkness, and his other things in an iron box, and so went to bed and dreamed of his Lady Rosalind. Chapter 15 The King's Check When they all awakened next morning, their first ideas were confused. It is often confusing to wake in a strange bed, much more so when you have flown through the air like the king, the queen, and Benson the butler. For her part, the queen was the most perplexed of all, for she did undeniably wake, and yet she was not at home, where she had expected to be. However, she was a determined woman, and stood to it that nothing unusual was occurring. The butler made up his mind to claim the crown princeship and the hand of the Lady Melinda, because, as he justly remarks to William, here was such a chance to better himself as might not soon come in his way again.
As for the king, he was only anxious to get back to Falkenstein and have the whole business settled in a constitutional manner. The ambassador was not sorry to get rid of the royal party, and it was proposed that they should all sit down on the flying carpet and wish themselves at home again. But the queen would not hear of it. She said it was childish and impossible, so the carriage was got ready for her, and she started without saying a word of goodbye to anyone. The king, Benson, and the prince were not so particular, and they simply flew back to Falkenstein in the usual way, arriving there at 11.35, a week before Her Majesty. The king at once held a court. The horns and tail of the monster were exhibited amidst general interest, and Benson and the prince were invited to state their claims. Benson's evidence was taken first. He declined to say exactly where or how he killed the fire drake. There might be more of them left, he remarked, young ones that would take a lot of killing, and he refused to part with his secret. Only he claimed the reward, which was offered, if you remember, not to the man who killed the beast, but to him what brought its horns and tail. This was allowed by the lawyers present to be very sound law, and Benson was cheered by the courtiers. Who decidedly preferred him to Prigio, and who besides thought he was going to be crown prince. As for Lady Melinda, she was torn by the most painful feelings, for much as she hated Prigio, she could not bear the idea of marrying Benson. Yet one or the other choice seemed certain. Unhappy lady, perhaps no girl was ever more strangely beset by misfortune. Prince Prigio was now called on to speak. He admitted that the reward was offered for bringing the horns and tail, not for killing the monster. But were the king's intentions to go for nothing? When a subject only meant, well, of course he had to suffer. But when a king said one thing, was he not to be supposed to have meant another? Any fellow with a wagon could bring the horns and tail. The difficult thing was to kill the monster. If Benson's claim was allowed, the royal prerogative of saying one thing and meaning something else was in danger. On hearing this argument, the king so far forgot himself as to cry, Bravo! Well said! And to clap his hands, whereon all the courtiers shouted and threw up their hats. The prince then said that whoever had killed the monster could, of course, tell where to find him and could bring his hooves. He was ready to do this himself. Was Mr. Benson equally ready? On this being interpreted to him, for he did not speak Pantuflian, Benson grew pale with horror, but fell back on the proclamation. He had brought the horns and tail, and so he must have the perquisites and the Lady Melinda. The king's mind was so much confused by this time that he determined to leave it to the Lady Melinda herself. Which one of them will you have, my dear? He asked in a kind voice, but poor Melinda merely cried. Then his majesty was almost driven to say that he would give the reward to whomsoever produced the hooves within the week. But no sooner had he said this than the prince brought them out of his pouch and displayed them in open court. This ended the case, and Benson, after being entertained with sherry and sandwiches in the steward's room, was sent back to his master. And I regret to say that his temper was not at all improved by his failure to better himself. On the contrary, he was unusually cross and disagreeable for several days. But we must perhaps make some allowance for his disappointment. 
But if Benson was irritated and suffered from the remarks of his fellow servants, I do not think we can envy Prince Prigio. Here he was, restored to his position indeed, but by no means to the royal favor. For the king disliked him as much as ever, and was as angry as ever about the deaths of Enrico and Alfonso. Nay, he was even more angry, and perhaps not without reason. He called up Prigio before the whole court, and thereon the courtiers cheered like anything. But the king cried... Silence! McDougal, drag the first man that shouts to the serpent house in the zoological gardens and lock him up with the rattlesnakes. After that, the courtiers were very quiet. Prince, said the king as Prigio bowed before the throne. You are restored to your position because I cannot break my promise. But your base and malevolent nature is even more conspicuously manifest in your selfish success than in your previous dastardly contempt of duty. Why, confound you! cried the king, dropping the high style in which he had been speaking and becoming the father, not the monarch. Why, if you could kill the fire, Drake, did you let your poor little brothers go and be broiled, eh? What do you say, you sneak? You didn't believe there were any fire drakes? That just comes of your eternal conceit and arrogance. If you were clever enough to kill the creature, and I admit that, you were clever enough to know that what everybody said must be true. You have not generally found it so. Well, you have this time, and let it be a lesson to you. Not that there's much comfort in that, for it is not likely you will ever have such another chance. Here the king wept. (laughs) Among the tears of the Lord Chief Justice, the poet laureate, who had been awfully frightened when he heard of the rattlesnakes, the maids of honor, the chaplain royal, and, and everyone but Colonel MacDougall, a Scottish soldier of fortune who maintained a military reserve. When his majesty had recovered, he said to Prigu, who had not been crying, he was too much absorbed and ashamed at the loss of his brothers. A king's word is his bond. Bring me a pen, somebody, and my checkbook. The royal checkbook, bound in red morocco, was brought in by eight pages with ink and a pen. His majesty then filled up and signed the following satisfactory document. Ah, my children, how I wish we had a sponsor who would do as much for our program. There, said His Majesty, crossing his check and throwing sand over it, for blotting paper had not yet been invented. There, take that and be off with you. Prince Prigio was respectfully but rapidly obeying his royal command, for he thought he had better cash the royal check as soon as possible, when His Majesty yelled, Hey, hey now, come back, I forgot something. You've got to marry Melinda. Chapter 16, A Melancholy Chapter The prince had gone some way when the king called after him. How he wished he had the seven-league boots on, or that he had the cap of darkness in his pocket. If he had been so lucky, he would now have got back to Gluckstein and crossed the border with Lady Rosalind. In fact, he would have given up both his title and the money for a pair of young people who really love each other could live happily on less than the check he had in his pocket. However, the king shouted very loud, as he always did when he meant to be obeyed, and the prince sauntered slowly back again. Prigio, said his majesty. 
Where are you off to? Don't you remember that this is your wedding day? My proclamation offered not only the money, which you have, but the hand of the Lady Molinda, which the court chaplain will presently make your own. I congratulate you, sir. Molinda is a dear girl. I have the highest affection and esteem for my cousin, sir, said the prince. But I'll never marry him, cried poor Melinda, kneeling at the throne, where her streaming eyes and hair made a pretty and touching picture. Never! I despise him! I was about to say, sir, the prince went on, that I cannot possibly have the pleasure of wedding my cousin. The family gallows, I presume, is in good working order? Asked the king of the family executioner a tall, gaunt man in black and scarlet, who was only employed in the case of members of the blood royal needing shuffling of mortal coil. Never better, sire, said the man, bowing with more courtliness than his profession indicated. Very well, said the king. Prince Pregio, you have your choice. There is the gallows. Here is Lady Molinda. My duty is painful, but clear. A king's word cannot be broken. Molly or the sword? The prince bowed respectfully to Lady Melinda. Madam, my cousin, your clemency will excuse my answer, and you will not misinterpret the apparent discourtesy of my conduct. I am compelled, most unwillingly, to slight your charms, and to select the extreme rigor of the law. Executioner, lead on. Do your duty. For me, Prigio est pret. For this was his motto, and meant that he was ready. Poor Lady Melinda could not but be hurt by the prince's preference for death over marriage to her, little as she liked him. Is life then so worthless? And is Melinda so terrible a person that you prefer those arms? And she pointed to the gallows. To these? Here she held out her own, which, truth be told, were quite well-shaped and pretty by any reasonable standard for judging arms. Besides, Melinda was a good-hearted lady, and she could not bear to see Prigio put to death, and then perhaps she reflected that there are worse positions than the queenship of Pantuflia. For Alfonso was gone. Crying would not bring him back. Ah, madam, said the prince, you are forgiving. For you are brave, said Melinda, feeling quite a respect for him. But neither your heart nor mine is ours to give. Since mine was another's, I understand too well the feeling of yours. Do not let us buy life at the price of happiness and honor. Oh, that's perfect, really. Even if this isn't quite the end of the chapter, I am, as they sometimes say in Pantuflia, verklempt. You've been listening to Through the Looking Glass from Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio, Part 5 of 6. The story was written by Andrew Lang and lightly adapted for radio by Bjorn Munson. Produced by Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, in association with Arlington Independent Media, WERALP, 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. Featured in the cast were Bjorn Munson as the narrator, 
Brooks Tegler as Benson, Joel Snyder as Ambassador Kelso, Nick DePinto as Prince Prigio, Kevin Murray as King Grognio, Mary Lecter as the Queen, Amy Teabear as Lady Melinda, and William R. Coughlin as the Family Executioner, with additional voices by Mike Bernal, William R. Coughlin, Kim Davenport, Elizabeth Farrington, Tara Garwood, Bjorn Munson, and Brooks Tegler. Recorded at Tolgi Wood Studios in deepest Springfield, with supplemental recording in many other places. See our show notes on jabberaudio.com for details. There, you'll also find our latest episodes and enough information to satisfy a prince. Well, I'll be satisfied when I find out what the quorum is up to. I can tell you that much. You and me both. Dialogue editing by Maurice Malden, with sound editing and final mixing by William R. Kaufman. Post-production services provided by Tohu Bohu Productions, LLC. If you're enjoying Prince Prigio and the other yarns we spin at Jabberwocky Audio Theatre, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash teamjabberwocky for exclusive content and to help us continue to bring you further tales of silliness, suspense, and high adventure. Until next time, this is Kim Davenport saying thanks for listening and tune in next week for part six, the final part of Prince Prigio. Hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Walk?